0: This is internet marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm your host Scott Colner, and today with me is Emily Maguire, owner and chief email marketer at Flourish and Grit. And we're going to be talking about uncovering hidden revenue in your email lists. So welcome to you, Emily. Thanks for coming on.
3: Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here.
0: Oh, Thank you so much. Uh, we've just been talking just before we started recording. It's a big day today as we're recording in the US for the U- US election. So this is a welcome distraction from all the mania in the world today. And hopefully it is for our podcast listeners whenever you listen to this too. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. But before we go in depth into email marketing, can you please provide a little bit more about your backgrounds and your experience to our listeners?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I live in uh, near Detroit in the US in Michigan. And I have been doing only email marketing um, for the past six years. I was a digital marketing generalist before then and, uh, got email thrown on my plate. Like most people told to figure it out. And so I figured it out <laughs> and found out I loved it, uh, because it combines those two pieces that I appreciate working on, which is the, the analytical strategic piece and also the creative fun part, you know, the copywriting design, all that kind of stuff. And I worked in-house for a few brands, mainly in the e-commerce, retail, specialty foods space, and then I was actually living in the southern United States at the time and uh, moved back uh, home to Michigan after I had my son, was looking around for a job, the job, not just any job, and wasn't finding the right fit, so I made my own job because all I want to do is email marketing. I don't want to do the SEO, blogging, social media stuff on top of it. I really enjoy being able to do one thing really well, really dig deep into something. And so I found that with email. So since then, I've worked with so many clients in the tech space with SaaS products, clients as small as consultants or Etsy shops all the way up to businesses, large e-commerce businesses that bring hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue in. And all along that way, I have uh, sent thousands and thousands of email campaigns, made every mistake imaginable, (laughs) which are sometimes the best lessons, right? And earned my clients millions of dollars in revenue from email campaigns alone. So It's been a fun journey, and I keep learning and helping my clients learn email as well. (laughs) I already have
0: lots of questions for you based off of your background. So thanks for that great (laughs) introduction. um, Well, my my first, I guess, and I hadn't really thought about this much until you've just mentioned it, but you've said you've worked with everyone from Etsy stores to kind of larger corporations. Would you say that the fundamentals of email marketing remain the same regardless of business size or do they change dramatically from the smaller businesses to the large corporations
3: uh that's a really great question because shockingly the foundations are the same Mm -hmm. and when i go into a client who or i start working with a client who either is maybe starting from scratch they have no email marketing program or maybe they have one already going, I ask the same questions, and I typically get the same response. And those major questions are, um, you know, what are your goals for your email campaigns and your email program at large? Uh, shockingly, a lot of teams or individuals do not have specific goals in mind, which for me, that helps... A, focus the content and the types of campaigns you want to send out. And B, helps you measure them correctly, you know, so that you know what was and was not a successful email campaign. That is a fundamental piece that I find even large businesses don't have. And the other one is having clean data. So having a database that is organized uh, well enough so that you can start segmenting and sending personalized content. It's not, I I have gone to big companies and it's a mess, right? So either I'm building it from scratch or I am, I'm rebuilding one from scratch, right? So Mm -hmm. those two fundamental elements, those have to be in place in order to have a successful email program, in my opinion.
0: Mm. You talked about transitioning from being a general marketer into email marketing, which is now a specialism and something you go deep into. And you talked about enjoying both the copywriting element and also the analytics element of uh, email marketing. And that's why you've doubled down in this area. Are there any other skills that you think are important to have as a modern email marketer?
3: I mean, I think... You don't need to necessarily know how to code an email from scratch mm-hmm. because there are so many uh, drag and drop builders um, and you don't necessarily need to know how the backend uh, system of an email marketing platform works, but it certainly helps, right? In that um you can at least talk the talk with somebody who can help you with those systems, right? So, if especially if you're managing an email program, I mean it's it's digital, right? It's fundamentally digital and it's connected to so many other pieces of tech for a company that if you don't know what's going on in that back end or how to find out what's going on, it gets to be really messy. So, at least having some knowledge of that or knowing who can help you with that. Right. As well as coding. Um, because I mean, email code is very ancient (laughs) and it's, Mm. it's similar to how a website is coded, but not how a modern website is coded. Um, so it helps to know those basics, of of padding and line height and things being responsive, mobile responsive, to either dig into that or find out who can help you dig into that and tell them what you need done.
0: In terms of email platforms, so you were just speaking about how you don't necessarily need to know code but understand uh, as a lot of email platforms make that easy for you. So I'm, I am curious to know what email platforms do you work with? And do you have any preference about the email platforms that you work with? Do you have any favorites?
3: Yeah. So I think, you know, depending on your industry. Um, so in the B2B world, you know, email marketing looks different than in the B2C world or e-commerce. So uh, if you're working uh, with at a B2B company or with a B2B company, I highly recommend Active Campaign. It has it is comparable to a HubSpot in that it has all the functionality and a lot of really advanced features for a really affordable price, like a fraction of the cost of HubSpot. So it's it's really remarkable what it does. And in the e-commerce world, if you are and it. Also depends on your database size, but I've been really impressed and really enjoy working with Clavio. Um, mm. Their predictive analytics are phenomenal. And I, I haven't seen other email service providers be able to do what they've done yet. Brilliant. Right? <laughs> As of today, November 2020, it could be different in a couple months, right? With how things change so quickly.
0: Well, yeah, that's that's true. And actually, I think I remember Klaviyo being referenced on a podcast by a previous guests quite recently. Uh, so yeah. they're obviously doing good things. I'm going to dive deep the fundamentals of, of uncovering that hidden revenue. And the way I've thought about this podcast today is maybe starting with send a reputation. And the reason for that, my train of thought was, well, it doesn't matter how good your emails are, if they're ending up in junk mail or wherever they're ending up, or they don't even make it into someone's inbox. So what I was going to ask you, and I know you've got a course on this, and I'll link to that in the show notes where you talk more about sender reputation and spam, but could you perhaps describe to our listeners what you see as sender reputation and maybe give them one technique or tip that they could go away and apply to their email marketing to improve their sender reputation today?
3: Yeah. So in the digital world, everything is tracked, right? Everything we do is tracked online, and that includes where you are sending your emails from. So uh, when your emails are sent out from a server, that server has a reputation associated with it that email clients like Gmail or Outlook or whatever um, look at to determine where they want to serve your email to, to the inbox, to the spam folder, or not deliver it at all. So that reputation is determined by a lot of factors, including um, how engaged people are with your emails. Are they opening them? Are they clicking them? Um, how often you're emailing. If you're only emailing once every three months um, and then send another email a month later, like that's very sporadic and it doesn't look safe and um, Just a host of other factors to consider, including how old is the the server or the IP address that you're sending your emails from. If it's brand new, that can look a little, you know, like a bot almost, right? Mm-hmm. So those are just a few factors. And yes, so one thing I recommend people do sort of across the board in email marketing is sending out one email a week just because it keeps your um, your IP address warm. It keeps people engaging with your emails, opening or clicking, and at minimum, just being consistent. So if maybe one email a week isn't practical for the resources you have, then once a month, right? So just being consistent with that. Another place to go and look at um, your sender reputation, there's a tool called Glock Apps. You can look at, they have what they call seed lists. So these are email addresses that they can, or inboxes they can monitor to see where your email is ending up. So is it being delivered at all? Is it making it into the inbox or the spam folder? And so that's a tool I use to um, check out any potential issues that could be going on with somebody's sender reputation.
0: Following my train of thought now, Uh, If you make it from junk mail into someone's inbox, one of the things that we hear most as marketers is about the importance of personalization. And I feel like, just as an observer, I'm not an email marketing specialist, but I've seen this kind of peak era of personalization in email marketing, and now I see it everywhere. And so one thing I'm curious about is... From your personal perspective, do you still see the results of personalization, particularly in email subject lines and click-throughs, or is it becoming less effective because it's so saturated now?
3: So in terms of personalization, it... (laughs) I hate this because I feel like it's the answer I give everybody. It depends.
0: <laughs> really? it? We're, we're yeah. marketers. We're, we're allowed like five of those a year.
3: Exactly. <laughs> five of those. Okay. So yeah. I've surpassed my quota, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when people talk about personalization, I um, mean, it can mean so many things, right? So one, it could be, you know, including a name in an email or it can include, you know, your most recent purchase in an email, right? So how I like to think about it, and, and that gets very tricky, because you need to have clean data, you need to have accurate data in order to do that, because nobody wants to get that email that says, hey, there, what is it bracket, squiggly bracket, F name, squiggly bracket, you know, we're so glad you're here, blah, 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 you know, like, that just Mm -hmm. comes off as impersonal and unattractive. So how I like to do personalization, and it's one that I coach a lot of clients through is personalization along somebody's customer journey, right? So bare minimum, segmenting your list of who people who are current customers versus people who have never purchased from you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because you're going to talk to those two audiences very differently. And you're also going to give them different offers, different incentives to uh, move forward in uh, their, their buying cycle with you. And you know, you might have different goals for those two segments too, right? So a current customer, you might just want to keep them nurtured and warm, right? Keep them seeing the value in your product or service. A lead, Mm -hmm. obviously you want to convert them. So you're going to be sprinkling more offer-driven content to them that might have um, a higher incentive than you would give a current customer, Right. Because a current customer doesn't need the same nudge to um, upgrade or upsell or uh, purchase again. Right. So that's where I really see the effectiveness of personalization is like bare minimum that, Hmm. you know, said talking to your leads uh, different, uh, more differently, different yeah, different different than your customers. And, um, and then like, you can even drill down further into that, into, you know, are your leads, how, how soon or how recent had, how recently had they sign up for your email list? Those are going to be your hottest leads, right? Or have they not or did they sign up more than six months ago and they've never purchased? What's going on with those folks, right? So that's how I like to look at personalization is more behavior-based um, along the customer's journey. And I see that make a more of an impact than anything else. That's
0: brilliant. Yeah, I was just following as you were talking. So it sounds like you're a real advocate through personalization via way of segmentation by user behavior, but not necessarily an advocate of personalization that's more superficial in nature, such as including F name, you know, last name, uh, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Yeah, no, that's interesting, it, and that's kind of that's kind of what I was looking to have answered because, uh, as a, as an outsider looking into the email marketing world, I think I see an overuse of personalization from the latter, so using people's names and not yes. the behavior. Yeah,
3: that tactic. I think people are are savvy enough to know these days that you know, that is not, that is not somebody personally typing in your email address, right? That is an mm. automation feature that is, that feels less personal, right? It doesn't feel like this, this company or brand really knows who I am.
0: Yeah. I find I could speak about this aspect of marketing forever. It's fascinating when you have something that's maybe new to a channel that initially is the hot new thing, which I feel yeah. like that that aspect of personalization was maybe, I don't know, five seven years ago or whatever it was and um, then it very quickly becomes insincere and that's the place that i feel that form of personalization is that it comes across to me very insincere when i receive it now right um yeah that's interesting and on the topic of good use of personalization so maybe companies that have done a good job of personalizing emails to you based on your user behavior have you got any examples that come to mind for you
3: um i really so in the e-commerce world i always find it fascinating when I see in the email a section where uh, they'll include my recently browsed items. I think mm-hmm. that's really powerful and impactful. Either you're recently browsed or any items you still have in your cart, uh, what they call abandoned cart types of campaigns. So you might have a campaign that's specifically devoted to that, or you can just include that block of Browsed or abandoned products in an email. It's, I think that's pretty brilliant and a really not easy tactic, but it's not as complicated, right? And it can apply to almost anybody on your list. So that I see really interesting. Um, And in the B2B world, it's very similar. So if you go browse a website and are looking at particular articles or particular offerings or products, those follow-up emails after I've looked at those things are typically really powerful because they can speak to uh, what they know about their customers based on you know their current customer research and what you've been browsing on their website. So um, I always love a follow-up email with, here's more content you might enjoy. Or, hey, do you want to talk to somebody to get a demo kind of thing. Those are really powerful. How
2: would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC.
0: And on this topic about tools or services or features that make that process a lot easier, and particularly for personalization, are there any – I'm going to say tools, services, or add-ons, because I know it varies for each platform, but that stand out to you as particularly useful when it comes to personalization?
3: Yeah, I mean, really – when it comes to personalization, just making sure your email service provider can do a deep data integration with whatever behavior you want to know, right? So whether that is um, what people are browsing on your website or, you know, can it integrate with your, your e-commerce platform and be able to pull orders and browsing behavior or browse products directly into your campaigns. And and that's something that I again I see a lot of people don't look at when they're choosing an email service provider. They don't think about, okay, well will this work and will this will will this be able to give us the data we want to send the kind of campaigns we want to send. And so like that to me, that's huge and that's something i talk to all my my clients about is when we're we're talking about what tools they currently use and what they want to send to their email service provider to be able to then customize and personalize emails like for example in the b2b world this is a really big one call scheduling tools mm. So that is really powerful, like a Calendly. Can you pull that data into your email service provider to say, hey, this person has booked a call with us? Does that mean, um, and what does that mean about particular campaigns we're either currently sending? Do we need to stop any? Um, or do we want to send new campaigns to them, right? So um, that's the, the really big thing I recommend people do.
0: Brilliant. That's some great advice. Thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to move on to subject lines. So thinking back to the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about scaling email marketing and the fact that you can, you know, the fundamentals apply to both small companies and large corporations. And I think that's one of the reasons that I love subject lines, because in email marketing, I guess it is a level playing field when it comes to that space in an inbox. You've got that ability to craft a subject line and you're competing against everyone else in that inbox. I'm always curious to stay up to date with some of the latest either techniques that are being used or tips, and and particularly how people create frameworks for themselves to create subject lines, because that's a creative process in itself. So I'm just curious to start off there. um, Are there any techniques that you know that are are effective that are maybe particularly hot right now or have been consistently useful over a long period of time?
3: Yeah. So first of all, using the word you in a subject line is very powerful. And I've seen stats where it's supposed to allegedly uh, boost open rates by like 30% or something like that. And it also helps you. In my experience as uh, doing copywriting, it helps me reframe how I'm speaking to my audience from a user-centered experience as opposed to a company-centered one, right? Because nobody cares that, you know, company uh, company ABC has great new products. We have great new products. Like, who cares? <laughs> I, I Unless, like, I'm a rabid fan of your company, right? If you reposition that as a Uh, you'll love the new products we just stocked or something along those lines, you know, off the top of my head, then you're actually speaking to your audience and you're putting it in a position that puts them at the center of the email, right? Because we are inherently selfish people. We want to know about ourselves, right? So... Using that word you, it is just a really great mindset shift as well, just for writing copy in general. And the other thing is sense of urgency. That's always a great technique to throw into an email. Don't assume that people are going to realize that an offer or service or event you are throwing is happening soon, right? People don't have the same sense of urgency as you do. So making that explicitly clear, um, that's another great technique. And then the last one I'll mention is throwing in benefits or outcomes, right? This is another copywriting perspective where, again, you want to show people that what's in it for them? You know, that age old copywriting technique, what's in it for me? So throwing in the benefits or potential outcomes of opening the email um, is always going to strike a chord.
0: Brilliant. And I'm going to go for the flip side of that as well. So anything to avoid in subject lines, Um, maybe these can be just no-nos that could be applied to any email marketing campaign or things that you've tried yourself that you thought, Hey, this might work. And it just fell flat.
3: I mean, how much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Because I could eat up the rest of the time. (laughs) So no-nos. So this is something um, I have seen people do. And it's also the pitfall of focusing on open rates as your primary metric of success for an email campaign is people get really, I don't even want to say creative, with trying to just get somebody to open an email, right? right? So I've seen... People use a tactic where, you know, your order is waiting or your order is confirmed. There was no order. And so you're confused and you're like, wait, what? I don't remember doing this. So you open the email and it's just a tactic to get you to open the email and they want you to place an order, right? That's that's really misleading and making people feel like they've been tricked to open your email is not a good experience or feeling for a subscriber. So I've, I've seen people make decisions like, oh, that subject line clearly worked because it has a huge open rate. But what they neglected to look at were the unsubscribe rates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you may have gotten a huge open rate because you got people to open, but you might've also upset them. And now you have a huge unsubscribe rate from that current email, right? Another thing is that I see, especially in the B2B world, where for some reason there is this idea that the sender name, this is something that I also see people neglect, is the sender name of your email campaigns. Mm -hmm. Um, That makes a difference, right? The first thing people look at is who's the email from and then what's the subject line. And so there is this trend or practice where People put just somebody's personal name as the sender name. So maybe a sales rep, first name, last name. And it's like, I don't, I don't know who that person is. Uh, so I open the email because, hey, maybe some new person's emailing me and, oh, it's a marketing email. And, uh, I have, maybe I haven't heard from this brand in months. And so I don't remember who they are. So being, um, clear about who the email's from is going to build brand trust and keep people on your list putting somebody's personal name as the sender name on the email it might boost e- open rates but again look at your unsubscribe rates and what were your goals for the campaign to begin with just because somebody opens an email doesn't mean they're going to convert so so I, that's my whole rant about sender names <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think that's interesting. And actually, so do you think that from from the majority of people out there, obviously it's looking at the data and figuring out what works for you, but it sounds like a happy medium would be make sure there's a personal name followed by brand name if you're going to go that route?
3: Yeah, usually I recommend like first name and some sort of like dash or something, some sort of character company name. If you're in the B2B space or you want to try something different and test it out. But brand name is always going to give you, it first of all is going to build your brand recognition in the inbox. And so people are going to be used to you being there. Um, because that's a, that's another thing people don't recognize unless you're some household name and people are not going to remember who you are, right? Our attention spans are. Uh, very short in digital <laughs> marketing. Um, and so you have to build brand recognition in the inbox like you have to do anywhere else.
0: Yeah. On the topic of emojis, they seem to uh, be a controversial topic within email marketing and the use of emojis. Uh, where do you, What's your stance on them? Do you like the use of them? Do you not? Do you hate them?
3: I mean, it, if it fits with your subject line and your, your tone, your brand voice, then for sure do it. I haven't seen, so I've tested dozens, if not hundreds of subject lines, and I haven't seen um, nine times out of 10, the results are flat, including mm-hmm. uh, an emoji. And so it just it depends on what your goals are, you know, and I don't think it necessarily hurts anything as long as, again, it fits with your content and your brand.
0: That makes sense. So it's fair to say you've seen no evidence to suggest that emojis will massively increase the, your click through rate. Um, and so really it comes down to look at your own data, see if they work mm-hmm. for you and also consider your own brand.
3: Exactly. Yeah. It, and it varies from yeah brand to brand, from campaign to campaign. So yeah, does it make sense for you and, uh, and your customers?
0: Brilliant. And as we close out this topic of subject lines, I am curious to know, because it is such an art, it is such a craft, and I love the craft of copywriting and to... To come up with multiple subject lines can be a real effort for some people, even, you know, no matter what your experience. So do you have any particular frameworks or techniques that you use to help you brainstorm subject lines? Um, Is it a case that you just sit down with a coffee and write or do you have an app or something that you use?
3: I just, uh, well, first of all, I keep an eye out for subject lines that I really like and I keep a list of them and use those as inspiration, right? Like, how can I craft this so that it fits with this particular email? Um, Or how can I bounce off of that? But typically, I again, I sit and I think, oh, I try to put myself in the subscriber's shoes, you know, what is the big result or benefit they'll see from opening this email. And usually, it's just me typing out five to 10 subject lines. And usually they get better at the uh, lower on the end of that list, right? As you're sort of uh, iterating and building off of the last version.
0: Hmm. Okay. Uh, Thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to transition into... Really, it's a phrase that's used throughout your website, which is uncovering hidden revenue, which I love as a phrase. It's a great copywriting phrase. And I want to ask you, I know this is core to your business, so I'm not expecting you to share everything in this area. But maybe if you could describe some of the ways in which people are missing revenue within their email list. So to rephrase that, maybe what the biggest missed opportunities are, and maybe some of the things our listeners can do to then uncover that hidden revenue over the next few email campaigns?
3: Yeah, I think the biggest one, and I feel like this idea has been percolating for me for a while, and I finally have a word to frame it, which is (laughs) repetition. So I think that people assume when you send out any kind of campaign, that somebody will look at that email or whatever and say, okay, yes or no, I want this. And then they'll take action or they won't. But often the somebody's buying uh, decision cycle can be longer than that. So reiterating or repeating things in your email campaigns is going to reap huge rewards. That includes, you know, don't and don't assume that everybody knows exactly exactly every service or product you offer that might be beneficial to them. So that might look like, you know, at the bottom of every email include your most recent special offer, right? Or your most popular package or um, your most, uh, your customer favorites of the products you sell. Right? So, Giving people the option to explore your products or services on every email you send. Um, obviously, if it's tone deaf, if you, if you include that in there, don't do it. But having that way to become a customer in every single email you send is going to reap huge rewards for you because again, somebody the mistake I see a lot of people make is they use email as a primary uh, primary content pushing platform, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, read this latest article, uh, look at this latest update for our company, whatever it might be. But they don't help people become a customer. Uh, mm-hmm. They expect you to go find that information, which is putting the burden on the subscriber. So including some kind of call to action to nurture that subscriber down your sales cycle is going to reap huge benefits. And even just sending out the same email a few different times, right? If you're launching a new product or a new service, or you really want to push a product or service, come up with a series of emails that you're sending out. Don't just dedicate one email to one One shot, right? Like that's Mm. not how people work. That's not how they behave.
0: Yeah, that's particularly interesting in the world of e-commerce. I'm just thinking it through myself as a customer is that I see lots of product launch emails, such as we've launched this thing today, but I don't see so many companies doing the anticipation emails up to that launch. So that's a really good, I think, a really good piece of advice from you there.
3: Yeah, or even just following up, like, hey, did you see that we launched this thing? Um, especially to people who may have clicked through the email, but didn't convert, you know, people get distracted. And so maybe they had every intention of converting. But you know, whatever, your cat showed up, or your uh, somebody rang your doorbell, <laughs> or a coworker IMs you, you know, like things happen, and we get distracted. And often we're not going to be like, oh, I meant to buy something from that email. I better go back and find it. You know, mm. it's not how we, it's not how humans work.
0: I wish I could remember it as well because as you were talking, you reminded me of a, a study, and I think it was of a US e-commerce company, and I can't remember which one it was. But um, if I find it, I'll link to it in the show notes. But they were testing one-off emails in in the e-commerce space. So they would just write one email to a customer. And it would be maybe to their customers based on user behavior for, say, their highest performing, their best performing product of the month. And rather than, as you said, using emails to up, providing a kind of curated email update, they would just focus on these, they were basically transactional based emails to say, you know, this is our highest selling product. This is why it's amazing. It was like a landing page, but in an email format. And, And they were doing that to drive revenue for their best selling products. And it helped them, double their sales on their best-selling products just by doing that for email marketing. So I think there's a lot of great advice in what you were just saying about uncovering hidden revenue by number one, don't base new product launches, particularly just on one shot. And number two, I think th- the thing that stands out to me based on what you just said, is don't treat your email marketing campaigns as just a curated list of updates. Maybe think about it more. I don't know, maybe you can elaborate on this a bit, but maybe think about it more as if, you know, what the, the amount of effort that people put into blogs and video content, maybe put that same amount of effort into their emails.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's what, especially in the B2B space, right? Mm-hmm. I see that mistake of, you know, content marketing, which is great, right? It's very powerful and impactful, but what people tend to focus on is just the content and they don't think about, okay, well, what if somebody reads this content, gets really excited? They've been thinking about working with you for a while and they're ready right that moment after reading it. And you give them no instruction on how to take the next steps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you're, you're putting the burden on the subscriber to go hunt down your phone number or your demo request form or whatever it is instead of, Guiding them to take the next step. And so you can't just keep throwing content out there, expecting for people to, you know, just kind of get it, <laughs> you know, like, Oh, they'll know, they'll know what to do next. Like you can't expect, you can't assume that about people. Like always include instructions for how to take the next step, whether that's, you know, booking a call or filling out a form or whatever that is.
0: And on this train of thought, and to close out this podcast today, I'm curious to know, you must spend so much time, I'm assuming, in your inbox and just keeping track of email subject lines. You referenced that earlier. Is there anyone that does a good job of the things that you've just described? So that a company that does really well in uncovering uh, their hidden revenue and getting people to transact for emails?
3: Yeah. So um, in the e-commerce space, there is... People love the, the, the funny uh, content that um, Shinesty puts out. They're kind of what they call those bro retailers or bro tailors. Oh, I've not um, heard what, what was the name? Sorry? Shinesty. Okay. Um, yeah. And so they always have hilarious content and their subject lines. They really play around with with their sender names and subject lines so that you still know it's from them because you get used to their brand. Target is always the master of data and Uh and buyer journey. And so like, I'm always, I'm always just like, my mind is blown with how well they know me (laughs) and what I'm looking at on their website. Cause like, they're always sending me relevant content and offers and products that I'm just like, they know me, they're watching me. Oh my God. But this is so helpful. So I don't mind. (laughs) But yeah, subject lines like that. And then, God, there's this other retailer that I just started following or that I just signed up for their emails. And they, send, they sell dresses. Um, Reformation. They have amazing uh, subject lines and content. And they were doing such a great job when the lockdown initially happened. They were sending emails that were like, I know you're not going to wear any dresses out right now, but here you can browse online <laughs> while you're waiting for the world to end kind of stuff. Mm. So yeah, they're, they're pretty great too.
0: Actually i um, speaking on that. So uh, I, re- I remember, I think I've seen a blog from you on your website about, I think it was on your website about pandemic related communications, but do you think that people should change their communication style during the pandemic via email or what's your stance on that?
3: I mean, what we learned from, whatever, March, um, at least in the U.S., where uh, we saw just floods of emails from CEOs about the response that that particular brand was um, making to meet the demands of of COVID. Everybody was just eye rolling like crazy, you know, like, I do not care that you're sanitizing your boxes before you pack them. I do not care that all your employees are remote, you know? And they were very like brand centered emails. Like, mm-hmm. and the subject lines were even update from the desk of CEO guy. And everybody got pretty tired of those pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so And additionally, they were uh, sending those emails to their entire list of people who, even if they haven't emailed those people in years. So to me, that says, A, like you don't need to send an update email like that to everyone on your list, right? Mm. You can segment those to current customers or um, hot leads. You can also maybe not make it so brand centric, right? Um, Which is like a a problem I see often in email marketing anyway. So really think about how you are being of service to your customers during a crisis, instead of uh, what you what you think your stakeholders want to know, right? yeah just keeping it customer centric as always i think will will keep you on the good side of your customers no matter what
0: brilliant thanks for that and my my final question for you today is something that i was i was thinking about how much you must sign up for email newsletters okay. and going through that process and i imagine your inbox is a pretty crazy place to be and on that note i was thinking is there anything that you do in that space to make your inbox more manageable and on that note, it's, I'm thinking of things like, are you an inbox zero advocate? Yeah. Any tools, services, frameworks that you use to manage your own inbox?
3: Yeah. So I, so a I, I have an assistant and when she started, I was like, I need help with my inbox. Please help me. <laughs> 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 but actually working with her made me realize like, why am I signing up? For all these emails on my email address, like what? What am I doing here? I don't need this. So, I created a separate email address just for uh, signing up for emails that I want to research or keep abreast of. So that's helped a lot. They also there's also um, burner email addresses you get, which I've also started using. So if I want to follow a particular email journey, I'll create a a, a burner email address and just watch what they send that email. So that's how I do it. And I am an inbox zero person. Those notifications, the little number ticking up on my app, uh, really make me anxious. So, uh, but I actually use a tool, I actually cr- or started using a tool that you can manage your email with a team. So, which has really helped. So um, I highly recommend that if if you are in a similar position as me.
0: Can you remember the name of that tool? Oh, I'm assuming yep. not. Oh, you yeah. uh, have?
3: Yes. It's called Helpwise. That one I, uh, I'm in every day. But yeah. And then I also started creating rules in my, before my assistant made it very clear that it was out of control. Uh, I was creating rules and tags for particular types of emails that I, if it came from a certain sender, I would set it up in Gmail that like, Hey, tag it this and just immediately archive it to that folder. But then that got that also got out of control. It's a it's a process.
0: <laughs> no, I thought it might be. That's why I asked the question. So that was some fascinating <laughs> advice. So thanks for that. And um, to close out the episode, uh, how can people get in your inbox and connect with you? Uh, how can they get in front of you, Emily?
3: Well, I am not to brag, but I'm on the World Wide Web. <laughs> um, you can find me. Um, I do have a free action guide on how to boost your email open rates that includes, you know, some of the things we mentioned, um, in this podcast, you can find that flourishgrit.com slash open. And I also hang out on LinkedIn a lot. So I, I post on there almost daily, uh, with all of my thoughts about email marketing and just work. Um, so if you want to get inundated in your LinkedIn feed, come follow me or connect with me there.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That's been a really great episode. Uh, so thanks for your time and enjoy the rest of your evening
3: thank you thanks for having me take
0: care bye bye